Podcast. Hold on to your butt. Come on, sucker. Let's get it on. Oh, you want to fight? You want to fight? I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. You don't know anybody named Iris? I don't know nobody named Iris. Can I have a piece of toast? I don't give a damn what you think you are entitled to. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Western demands. How could you do this to me? Blit, I want to know. Why did you do that? What you feel only matters to you. And the truth shall set you free. And that's all. No, no, not for the real fire. We offer you the bond of family that very few can understand. Help me. Help you. I don't do drugs. Or whatever movies with Wesley and Iris. What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host Iris and I'm here with my older brother. Wesley. Wesley. I will curse your name for forever for recommending we watch The Lighthouse. Yeah, am I a whale's pecker? A sperm whale's pecker or whatever? Willem Dafoe's favorite insult? There's a name for that, you know. Yeah, do- uh, wait, dork. Yep. The Lighthouse, written by Dave Eggers. Robert Eggers, nice try. Written by Bob Eggers. Bob and Max, siblings. Robert Eggers, director of The Lighthouse. Dude's like 32 years old or something. Really? Yeah. Is this what, do like 30-somethings love bizarre-ass shit? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, he was a 20-something when he loved the Vivich bizarre-ass shit. What's that? The Witch. You didn't see The Witch that they spell with two Vs so it looks like The Vivitch? What was it about? I don't think so. Maybe. It was about a witch. Well, obviously. Which witch? It was like a weird puritanical tale about uh, witches that it was his first feature. This is Lighthouse is only his second feature. I got from Brian's response when I said, we're watching The Lighthouse tonight, that it was scary or that it was weird. And, and he declined watching it. So that was interesting. And from your lovely introduction of me, apparently it was it was hard on you, huh? Well, remember when I was like, oh, Wes, like, thanks for recommending Apollo 11. Without you, yep. this would never come into my life and recalibrated my senses. Yeah. Yet now I'm like, what are you trying to do to me? Is this is our <laughs> podcast like some weird form of psychological torture for you? I was interested to watch The Lighthouse. It has a really weird, strange, bleak, cryptic trailer. Uh, you do get some of the flashes in the movie, which suggested this is basically a haunted lighthouse. But uh, I didn't know much about it going in either. And uh, Kelly asked me afterwards, was it what you expected? And I said, not at all. So you didn't know it was like a two-man pirate play? No, I pretty, <laughs> I knew pretty much that that's what it would be. But thematically, I thought it would go in a completely different direction. Frankly, it's you know I'm not alone in saying that I don't really know what direction it ultimately went in. So I was trying to think what the lighthouse means to me and the only thing I could think of was an analogy so you know do you ever have do you ever get those things where they like a little white thing will come out of your mouth like spit no it's like a little like a tapeworm Bo used to call them pus pockets who Bo Shannon Bo she used to call them pus pockets they're like little white rocks that come out of your mouth every now and then do you know what I'm talking about no clue that's gross this has never happened to you ever no, like they're little fully formed pockets of junk. 
So, like, Brian has corroborated this. In fact, I think that Brian used to pick his out with a toothpick. But in the back of your mouth, you have these, like, saliva glands. And then, like, pus and crap get stuck in there. And then they turn into these little white rock things. And every now and then you'll, like, laugh. <laughs> or you'll, like, eat something spicy. <laughs> and they'll, like, come out. And you'll be like, what's this? And you'll, like, feel something in your mouth. And you're like, I haven't eaten anything. And then you'll, like, take it out. And you'll be like, whoa, what is this? And it's, like, foul and it's stinky. And then you, like, it smells really bad. And then you wonder, like, how such a small, simple thing could be so gross. How could a, a small thing, two dudes in a room, in a four-by-three frame, with not much going on except for, like, posturing and monologuing and slow dancing... How it could be so stinky and gross. Three. What is it? What is it? What was the aspect? Four three. Yeah, you wish. It was almost a perfect square. It was like one by one point two or something. So you're saying the lighthouse is a a pus pocket of a movie? <laughs> it's a small, fairly fascinating, gross, not a novelty. A curiosity. Yeah. 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 Okay. I can track the story of the lighthouse, right? This dude arrives. Based on a real story. No. Yeah. Two Welsh lighthouse guys uh, in the 19th century, both named Thomas, cooped up in a lighthouse and surrounded by the elements. They, a, a severe storm came in, so they weren't able to leave. One of the Thomases had a heart attack, heart attack and died. And the Thomas left, presumably with a dead body, lost his mind and flipped out. I don't know how much damage you can do to yourself, and I'm not sure whether or not he survived. This may be an urban legend, but this myth inspired this movie for sure. Well, what about the mer people and the evil presence and the? Yeah, that's all myths of the sea seafaring folk from uh, days of yore. Right, like old sea evil sea magic. Yeah. So this dude arrives on this rock. He's got a four-week assignment to help man a lighthouse with this old Captain Ahabi. Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, Sea Captain guy. Yeah, yeah. Are you suggesting that despite the fact that the opening shot was the prow of the ship or the bow of the ship cutting through the water and then we get a far off distant shot of the lighthouse and then we have two men in frame. Likewise, when they arrive at the lighthouse, we have two men carrying their trunk, presumably the former keepers, whereas two new dudes arrive with a trunk in hand. And then later, later Willem Dafoe is seen with a, a pack, like a, a satchel or a bag over his shoulder, that he didn't arrive, that Arpats was the one to arrive to find him there already? Yeah. Because Kelly said the same thing. And I said, no, they arrived together, for sure. And I did rewatch the beginning of the movie, and it looks like they arrived together. But if they arrived together, then what? Exactly. How did he lose his last assistant to madness? Right. It was a curious thing. So do you have some explanation for this? I have no explanation for this. So let's continue under the assumption that Robert Pattinson was arriving on his own, who who we thought was Ephraim at the time, but who ended up becoming Tommy, and met the already grizzled, already jaded, already possibly crazy Willem Dafoe, whack, wick, wet, wake character in the lighthouse. Whack, wick, wake. Okay. They sit down to their first dinner. They establish that wick, whack. Wake. Wake, that they established that Wake is um, an alcoholic and that he has way more experience and that he's the master of the lighthouse. He's the dude in charge. The light is mine. Exactly. 
And he's very, he, he's not only is, is he in charge, but he's protective and precious about the light. Not large and in charge. Little guy. Willem Dafoe? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, dwarfed by the bat. And Robert Pattinson is a little bit more enigmatic, and he slowly starts doling out information about himself. But already, when the movie starts, kind of like you were saying, when The Shining begins, Jack Nicholson's already all rotten apples. According to Stephen King. But um, we, we know right off the bat that both of these guys aren't quite all there. And then we also are led to believe pretty early on that myths and lore and old sea magic and stuff are at play. There's an evil presence on this island or in the lighthouse. There's mermaids, and mermaids are more like, you know, sirens than Ariel. <laughs> Bird myths and stuff like that. And then it just goes from weird and bodily functions gross to like, well, just kind of an amplified version of that. And then they kind of like fall in love, but instead of doing it, they fight. And then Willem Dafoe submits himself to Robert Pattinson and then Robert Pattinson tries to bury him and then he tries to kill him with an ax. And then Robert Pattinson gets light and he screams and goes crazy. So that was our review of The Lighthouse. Thank you for listening. What I was trying to suggest is that I tracked the story. I got a handle of how it progressed, but I um, kind of just don't know why. Like, I'm sure there's some meaning to it. I just don't know if it's worth sussing it out. Well, let's break down what we can control and what we do know and can, can ascertain from this movie. Firstly, we know that these two guys are probably not all there from the beginning, particularly Willem Dafoe. I don't know if I will admit that Robert Pattinson was obviously crazy from the start, but whatever it was that was influencing him got its claws into him pretty quickly because he saw the, the mermaid during pretty calm days. And so my question is, did he literally see the mermaid? I don't think so. Or was it a vision? Because he literally saw the head, or at least he thought he did. Yeah, maybe. But at that time, things had become so muddled and so mixed between Ephraim and uh, the previous, his his former partner versus Wake's former partner or associate. Um, it was difficult to tell. He saw the mermaid and he also saw the mermaid on the land and it yelled at him. Then, of course, later on, Willem Dafoe's character transformed beneath him into that octopus monster. Right. And then he took on many forms. He was the monster he was the siren and he was the albino right but that was our pats's former partner that he Ephraim? whose identity he assumed yeah that was Ephraim. yeah that was Ephraim. Ephraim's hit well Ephraim was the name of the guy whose identity he took to get a clean slate who was his like boss right so the blonde white dude was Ephraim. as far as i understand at least that's what he's credited as uh on imdb oh. but the point is Willem Dafoe became the octopus character, and then within the scope of that same fight, before that fight was over, he had changed forms a couple of times until it was just crazy Arpat on top of crazy Willem Dafoe beating him to death nearly, and he wasn't that octopus thing, right? It's not like, oh, now it's come to the final boss fight, and I shall reveal my true form, the golden child style, and now you're fighting a dragon or an octopus or whatever, right? He just wasn't those things. It was all... It was all in his mind. Oh, man. So it leads us to wonder how much of that was real. And this is kind of my issue with the movie. Uh, it, it stands on two levels. Firstly, 
Robert Pattinson said in an interview that he had talked to Eggers early on, very early on in this process, and said, so are these things really happening? Yeah. Or not? And he said, well, I, that's something that I want to leave you to figure out. Leave you as an actor or as an audience member? Both. Because obviously some of the stuff that's happening, uh, Robert Pattinson is filming them. He knows practically they are happening to him as an actor inhabiting this role. But he has no idea what these things are going to become on screen, okay. how they're going to be portrayed. That's so fine. Robert Eggers had said in several interviews that that's kind of his point, is the idea to leave the audience sort of guessing and wondering what is real and what is not. He wanted our experience, our viewing experience, to mirror the descent into madness that both of these characters experienced. I think our only through line was their emotional experience and how sort of we tracked them losing their grip on reality. And I think that our grip on the story runs concurrent with Willem Dafoe's grip on reality. I think that as he descends further into his madness, we start losing track of what is real and what is fantasy. Because yeah. we, we experience Robert Pattinson's um, delusions, but we have some sense of grounding from Willem Dafoe's character. And we know that Willem Dafoe is gaslighting him. And because of that, there was a sense of, like, I, I understood what what was and what wasn't real. But then Willem Dafoe starts losing it, whether he's giving in to his maladies or he's succumbing to the elements of his hard scrabble life or he's being taken over by whatever it is in the lighthouse. That's when we really start to lose it. Oh, by the way, I have a new term. Yes. Gas lighthousing. <laughs> You should uh, register that domain immediately. That was the thing that I felt like made this story really insidious. Is like how not only is he in a bad way, Robert Pattinson's character, but Willem Dafoe, the pirate king, is gaslighthousing him. And it's messed up. Yeah, he's kind of, in a way, he's part of the architecture, right? He's basically a part of the lighthouse. And it seems like we align more with, with Robert Pattinson's character coming in sort of blind. Right. And it's as if that guy has always been there. Right. And all the secret goings on and the weirdness can maybe be attributed to him. Because aside from the mermaid, R. Pats's first glimpse of madness came from watching him transform into the spooge octopus. Was he transformed into it or was he like doing it? No. But, well, no. So there was nothing else up there. Right. And so there was Spooge, uh, a decent, relatively, you know, normal amount of Spooge. And then there was like octopus level Spooge. And you're like, what is happening? Because, again, it added to our confusion. But this is what I pulled from it. But we also but saw a tentacle, octopus tentacle. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, that was him. That was him transforming mid-act or whatever. But why was he moaning Is, and 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 why was he why was he making weird sounds of ecstasy? Okay, if I I don't I don't if I have to tell you that, 
no, if he if he was trans if he was doing the spooge octopus, that's one thing. But if he was becoming it, why would that be pleasurable? I think that he was doing pleasurable stuff, and then it triggered some as kind the of, octopus. No, I think he started, and it happened mid transformation. It's like when you get really excited in Teen Wolf, you wolf out. When you get excited when, in Teen Wolf, you wolf out. Or, or, or when Mark Ruffalo gets mad, he becomes the Hulk. So I think when people are, are, are faced with this kind of movie, there are a couple ways that they're going to come out of it. Number one, they're going to be like, that was weird and random and stupid. Or they will say, that was compelling and it will require some thought that I will undertake when I'm not in your presence, so I can form a less than dumb response. But people want to think that they've glommed onto what's happening. They want an understanding because otherwise maybe you feel kind of dumb, not for following it the way that you feel that the filmmaker intended. Or the filmmaker is just like, no, I want it to be thoroughly confusing so that it sticks in and gnaws in your brain like a seagull at your intestines long after you leave the theater. Well, it doesn't appear to me that Robert Eggers was really going for our ultimate viewing pleasure. And so I, I feel like while there was so many good things about The Lighthouse, it fell short ultimately in its execution. They filmed it in black and white, so there's no turning back. And I get that it has to be lit differently, and apparently the light has to, for the stock they used needs to be hyper-accentuated. Like, it really needs to be, the light needs to be something like 10 or 15 times its usual brightness for you to see anything in this stock that they used. Mm -hmm. So that one little lantern illuminating their meal is basically blinding, so they can't even see each other. Oh, wow. But you would think you would get a comparable, more controlled effect if you were to film it in color, right? And just drop out the color, do a few tests so you can get the kind of the blacks you want and you can get the sort of uh, the shadows that you want and you can light it appropriately. Or you can do that in post. It seems like it would be a lot easier. Well, they, I think it was kind of an old timey type of story and maybe they were capturing that in its format. Well, yes, and including the aspect ratio, the screen, which I said was very nearly square. So Robert Eggers had said that movies in the past, obviously uh, widescreen didn't come about until midway through the century, uh, 50s at the, at the earliest, early 60s. And before that, the majority of movies were filmed in a comparable ratio to The Lighthouse. So he's shooting for an aesthetic that nobody recognizes. It feels old-timey for the sake of old-timiness, like throwing on a uh, a VHS tracking filter on your modern, you know, iPhone videos. You buy the app, and it makes it look like a, a crappy tracking VHS video. Yeah, but there was no, like, um, grain. It wasn't, like, grainy or... Or sped up in a weird sort of uh, Nickelodeon kind of way. Yeah, so it wasn't... It was, like, he was going for the old-timey aesthetic, but he but in a more advanced technological way. Isn't it kind of weird and ironic that this is on a mass market platform like Amazon Prime? Well, it landed on Amazon Prime long after the fact. Uh, this movie made less than $20 million worldwide, and so not very many people saw it. But I, you know, maybe <laughs> this ironically would have been best formatted for the giant non-widescreen IMAX format, right? Where as long as we're going to take advantage of this frame, we can blow it up as huge as possible and it's not going to have the sides cut off. I actually think that this would have been more compelling as like an Edinburgh Fringe Festival two-man play. Like I kind of feel like this belongs in the stage where you can take these creative licenses as opposed to 
on Amazon. I definitely got that feel too, because Robert Eggers does have a background in theater, and that comes across, I think, in a big way. Definitely, it felt like a two-man play, but at the same time, it was so wild and sort of gripping and cinematic that uh, it made me wish that I could see the sides of the screen. It's like inheriting a pan and scan copy of one of your favorite movies that you've been looking forward to seeing, and you pop it in and the sides are cut off, and it's it, it fills me with rage that I can't see the rest. Well, maybe it was intended to unsettle you like other elements and aspects of the film. Uh, maybe, but I think that in the, their techniques to kind of incite this sort of emotional response in me, I think, takes away from my immersive experience in the movie. Pulls me out more than anything. Uh-huh. But they filmed in Nova Scotia over something like 35 days in the worst weather imaginable. Oof. They said that they very rarely needed the wind machine that they had on set because they were just like gale force winds and crazy tide. And they had to wait and wait and wait to film the scene where he wades into the sea and sees the mermaid because otherwise he would have been dashed to death on the rocks. Whoa, that's rough. It seemed like really hard living out there and I can't imagine it was easy to film. Why did the lighthouse require such hard labor? I mean, what exactly was he doing wheelbarrowing rocks up and down that path? Well, if it, it was coal, presumably, right, to but feed the where? thing, to turn the thing and blah, the blah. I don't know. From the sea, it was sea coal. But he puts it into the thing <laughs> because otherwise, how is the, how is the lighthouse going to go? That's science, dude. <laughs> Which was also a very unnerving, unsettling device that they used consistently. It is. The, the sound was there. And Kelly said, did we just get used to it or did it go away? And I said, no, it, I think it went away. It comes but and goes. it was present, not just for us. It wasn't a sound effect because it was thundering in his ears when he was filling the boiler or whatever with coal. I don't know what the purpose of the sound was. I thought maybe during the daytime when the light isn't as, as, uh, as clear that it would warn the ships from the sound that there's land ahead. Right. I'm not really sure. Wasn't explained. Like a lot of other things in this movie weren't explained. I mean, it was definitely a foghorn. Okay. A lot of things confuse me in this movie. I will say that Willem Dafoe was so perfectly cast as the old salty sea dog who might as well have had a peg leg but didn't. And, uh, and Robert Pattinson really surprised me. I can't remember who it was. Somebody gave this kid advice post-Twilight. Uh, they said, if you want to have any kind of career in, in Hollywood after this, don't go for the big obvious grabs. Uh, because if it doesn't last, you got nothing. And then you're typecast in sort of this big studio movie kind of role. If you want to prolong your career, go with your gut, regardless of the size of the project. And let me tell you, Robert Pattinson has been doing that for a long time now. I remember he did Water for Elephants uh, quite a while back, and that was one of his larger releases. Uh, he did Good Time by the Safdie Brothers, who did Uncut Gems. So this kid is doing only what he wants. And apparently what he wants is to be miserable on location for like a month and a half. <laughs> Wet and fighting and insane a lot of the time. I mean, certainly a role he can sink his teeth into. Oh, and, look at that vampire humor. Uh, and I was also going to say that they were awfully good looking teeth for like 1890s sea logger man. But well, yeah, regardless... He got one glimpse of, of Willem Dafoe's teeth and was like, dude, I got to stay up on the brushing. <laughs> but you dog on me for watching television in the golden age of television. And yet you're the one that's seen every single Twilight that's ever existed and read all the books. 
I was single. What do you want me to do? There was a phenomenon. I had nothing but time on my hands. So I went and bought a Twilight book. And it just so happens that I read through that in less than 24 hours, went back to Borders, Books and Music, may it rest in peace, and got the other three books and demolished them in a, in a weekend. It was sad times, man, sad times. I actually said something to that effect to Kelly as well. I was like, this isn't too far off from the truth. You have to understand that when dudes are left to their own devices, when they're alone and unchecked or un, un, uh, unaffected by women for long periods of time, they really go nuts. Yeah, it's so true. Like, I'm surprised that the lighthouse was as clean as it was and orderly in their duties. I would have descended into madness long before that. Dudes left on their own, that's not a good idea. Let me tell you, if I was in that lighthouse and the, and the mermaid showed up, I'd be like, come on up here, girl. Let's see if you got legs because they're grasping at straws. The point is getting these guys, uh, these, these fine actors into this movie where they shot on location and really caught the elements. It wasn't like the fake rain weighed them down. It felt cold and miserable and alarming pretty much the entire time. So they really used the natural scenery and the weather to their advantage. I think this movie looked great. A really well-made movie that made me frustrated in its limitations. Sort of like uh, Dracula, the Francis Ford Coppola Dracula. So many great things about it. One of Gary Oldman's best performances. Terrifying and told by a master filmmaker who took it upon himself before filming even began to restrain himself to the technology and the film techniques only available during the 1930s uh, Bela Lugosi Dracula. So he employed... 50, 60 year old tricks to make this movie. And you can see it across the board where it looks cheesy or silly. And that was in full color widescreen. And there are some cool stylistic effects, but it looks like an older, less than movie, especially compared to modern horror movies. So while The Lighthouse, in the same way that Dracula does, achieves this sort of gothic aesthetic, it seems like it would have benefited by uh, the full tricks of the trade. And you know, the standards of technological filmmaking of the day. I don't think they hand-tied themselves, the filmmakers, at all, other than the, with the aspect ratio. I mean, yeah, that was limiting. It limited the scope. It perhaps focused the story, but it wasn't. Other than that, I don't think that they, they employed lots of other film tricks. I would actually go the other way and say that they were lucky enough to get many, many things down that they were fortunate to get given the constraints they put upon themselves with Got the it. black and white and, and, the, the and, the, and the aspect ratio. So they did a really good job, especially given that this movie wasn't backed by a major studio. It was acquired off of uh, Sundance by Amazon. Right. Um, it took them a, a good long time to put it on their platform anyway. But yeah. Well, I didn't have a ton of reference for Robert Pattinson going in. One day we will see him as the Batman. Right, exactly. But I didn't have a sense for him as an actor. I did think it was a pretty stellar performance. I did think there were a couple moments where I really felt for him. One, when he made the joke about, well, I'll have it your way. I do like your cooking. After they had, they had yeah. the big argument, the big bizarre argument that got... The, the two-minute, no-blinking monologue from Willem Dafoe, his crowning achievement in this movie? Right, when he's talking about how Robert Pattinson just has to admit that his lobster is good. Right. And that was a really humanizing moment for me. I understand it was probably an attempt at some dry humor, but it, for, it somehow humanized him. And then I really felt bad for him when he was attempting to flee and take the lifeboat and get out of there. It was like the only glimpse and moment of sanity in that last half of the movie that made me feel like there was some hope in this otherwise very dark, 
bleak and creepy world. And then it yeah. was dashed to pieces, literally, as William Defoe comes running out with an axe and bashes it up. And then continues to blame him for it. In that next scene, yeah. he's like, and I'll write in my report how you broke the lifeboat and threatened me with an axe or whatever he did. That was horrible. I don't know which, what, what if this is real. I don't know if Arpats wasn't actually out there destroying the, the boat by himself with the axe. It was confusing, and I wish I knew. I wish that I could say that this movie made sense to me. Well, if you take, if you take it at face value, just like we were assuming that the opening is what we thought it was, then you can track that this in this story there was a moment where he was trying to break away, break free from this mind control, whether it was from yes. Willem Dafoe or whether it was from the evil presence on the island. And then he succumbed. He ultimately succumbed, and so did Willem Dafoe to the point where he was groveling on his knees like a dog and willingly fell into his grave. Yeah, I don't know that, that they ever had a chance in my mind. I never really thought he would make it. I was waiting for a wake to come around the corner with the axe. It was just so Lovecraftian and so gothic. And it essentially was a small story in the sense that these two guys go into a lighthouse and then when people show up later, these two guys are dead. And what do we, what do we know? What's fact and what's fiction? We don't know. And they left a lot of wreckage in the past. So if someone did try and come and piece the story together, they might have. And it was pretty gruesome. It would have been pretty gruesome what they found. So this means you loved it, right? Uh, I was really on the fence about this movie because uh, I did come out of this movie unsettled. I have thought about it a lot just because I know that we're preparing for this review. But I was prepared initially to give it a whatever rating below the line. And I maintain that this film has a lot of problems. I think that the, the filmmakers should have given us more to latch on so that we can more accurately track the descent into madness. Like Robert Pattinson's character wouldn't have had a good grip on whether or not Willem Dafoe's character was going insane while he was going insane at the same time. If he was perfectly sane, he could probably recognize the red flags from the other dude. I couldn't track what was happening in this movie because I, was, I felt like I was going insane as well, which was the filmmaker's intention and which I think made this a lesser film than what it could have been. Ostensibly. But it looked amazing. I admire the dedication and how well these guys were cast, maybe against type. I don't know that I expected this from Robert Pattinson. Uh, it was terrifying. It was atmospheric. And uh, there was a lot that went into it. And they took a lot of risks, a lot of chances, didn't care about how polished they looked on film, um, really went for it across the board, both in the filmmakers and the actors who are also filmmakers. And so I firmly decided that this was going to clear the bar into all right territory. What? Yeah, it was a long, hard road full of research and some personal reflection and coming to terms with my insecurities and, and my demons, and I will give it an all right rating. Before you go on praising Robert Pattinson's performance, what was going on with his accent? I mean, that was kind of all over the place. Was I it, really didn't notice. It wasn't Canada. It wasn't New York. It wasn't 1890s, nine descript. It was all over the map. You know what's strange about that is I was trying to pin him down too, and he wasn't the grizzled sea dog that Wake was. He came from the north northwest, I think, 
And uh, so he had a different dialect. Robert Pattinson, of course, is British. And so he, I, th I thought that his, his accent, while it didn't strike me as being all over the place, it certainly wasn't his own accent. And it felt only real to me in the sense that I couldn't pin it down. It was kind of like Tom Hardy's all-purpose American accent that kind of <laughs> slips into New York and slips into South and slips into L.A. like simultaneously. Just how much drawl he wants to add to it, <laughs> how much stink he wants to put on it. But uh, a few people have said that Robert Pattinson's character has some echoes of Daniel Plainview, Daniel Day-Lewis's character from There Will Be Blood. Huh. Now, that was a more consistent accent, but it was also hard to nail down because he's American and has been American his whole life in the same way that uh, Bill Cutting from Gangs of New York, also Daniel Day-Lewis, was American. But it's this weird, very specific dialect that doesn't ring true to our ears. Or it's He's so committed to it, and I have no doubt that he's doing it flawlessly. I just don't know where it's from. Like cheddar cheese on top of apple pie? That happens somewhere in the, in, the, in, the, in America, but I don't know where it is and no one can tell me. And you also don't know why. Right. Super authentic for a very small pocket that I can't identify. So I just assumed that his accent came from there. When he got all frantic and like high-pitched and yelly, especially near the end when the place was trash and he was going bonkers, like then it started going all over the place. Like it was really strong New York and then it went to this weird piratey thing. I mean, maybe he was, maybe it's because he was slipping away. Who knows? But anyway. Maybe you were descending into madness and couldn't tell a good accent from a bad accent anymore. Well, that's certainly the feeling that I went away with. I feel kind of crazy and I feel kind of gross. And I don't know that I want to do the powerful thinking it will take to understand this film. Are the pus pockets sometimes satisfying and gratifying? Or are they always unpleasant and gross? <laughs> I mean, you can be glad that that's not in there contributing to your halitosis anymore. Nope. You have to pin down this movie with a rating. It was a boring movie. Which is a little bit of a misnomer because it did hold my attention. But ultimately, I would say womp womp. Well. Do you feel all smart and um, smug having seen it? No, I feel like that's the problem with these movies. I think that people give them too much credence, say they're genius movies, and they're genius in a way that you are more genius than I, and so I don't fully comprehend it, but I'm confident that you have an unfailing vision, and I'm not sure the filmmakers had that. I consider myself a reasonably intelligent person to be able to kind of assess whether a, mo a movie is it works or not, and I, it was really hard for me to suss that out for this movie because I felt like I wasn't given all the tools to make that determination. Well, there you have it. A all right rating from Wes and a boring from Iris. I mean, I guess if you're brave enough or if you're curious enough or you're forced somehow to see this film, we'd love to know what you think about it. So hit us up. I recommended it to people. I passed it on. Tell me what you think. Cause, really? Yeah. To who? Well, yeah. It, I'm not looking for the filmmakers to explain anything further to me, but I definitely wanted to know what you thought. I wanted to know what the goose thought. Uh, we'll never get there with the sneak, but I'm, I'm going to give it a little bit of time and then I'll re-hit up Kelly and we talked about it quite a bit. It's not getting the answers. It's just sort of talking through the feeling because you got to work the pus pocket around a little bit before you can get it out of there. Yeah. You also kind of have to work it out a little bit to unleash its total stink. You've never had a pus pocket before. Nope. 
What's the uh, email? What's the uh, phone number? Or whatever movies at gmail.com, 818-835-0473. We'd love to hear whether or not you've had pus pockets and if I'm this weird anomaly of, of oral health. I'm, I'm, I swear to God, you're going you're gonna to have one and then you're going to be like, oh my God. Okay. <laughs> That's it for Lighthouse. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An Electric Cast production. See you there. Electric Cast. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electric Cast production. Electric Cast.